Livestock guardian dogs are just built different. Compared to other dog breeds, they live differently, work differently, behave differently, and importantly, learn differently. It's often said that LGDs can't really be trained in the usual sense, but with such a high failure rate among guardians, maybe we should be thinking about training on their terms instead of ours. Welcome to Farm Dog. This is Farm Dog, the podcast about the working dogs of farming, ranching, homesteading, and rural living. Farm Dog is presented by Goats on the Go, a national network of independent business owners who provide sustainable weed and brush control for their customers using goats. Want to put goats to work on your vegetation problem? Interested in launching your own goat grazing business? The place to start is goatsonthego.com. Welcome to Farm Dog. This is Aaron Steele, the host of the Farm Dog podcast, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Cindy Benson of Benson Maremas out of Gold Hill, Oregon. Cindy, welcome. Could you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, about your your farm, where you're located, what the landscape is like, how you came to be associated with working farm dogs, and uh, anything else you'd like our audience to know about yourself? Okay. Um, I live with my husband in um, Western Oregon on a 360-acre ranch. We've got um, mountain lions and bears and all sorts of things around us, which is part of why we want to live here. Um, I've raised livestock all of my life, miniature donkeys mostly, cows, sheep, goats, horses, you know, the whole thing. Um, About 10 years into or maybe um, on this property, we suffered our first loss to mountain lions and then a couple more losses, and we're pushed into looking into livestock guardian dogs. My husband told me if anybody could screw it up, it'd be me, because the minute it was cold and rainy, I'd have him in the living room, and he'd still be outside right. <laughs> guarding the livestock. But um, very quickly, it became clear that these dogs are well-designed to do that work, and that it's exactly what they want to do. So being in service to me does not come at a cost to them. It's a very mutually beneficial partnership and I found that um, they looked like dogs but they were very different dogs and so quickly I became their student and paid attention to what is reinforcing to an LGD what they care about how to how to work with them how to you know the fact that they're nocturnal the fact that if I'm lucky I'm a partner I'm never an owner I'm never in charge Um, that was um interesting to find and I'm fascinated by these dogs and have deep respect for the job that they do um that has gone on from there since that's that was in 2014 I think at this point I've owned or done training with easily 300 maremas um and many other kinds of guardian dogs here um through zoom those are those are actual personal dogs in my hands um and then my zoom training business there's training clients all across the country. So I've this is a Marema College. I've been well-trained by lots and lots of dogs. And the dogs that live here now, there are 20 adult dogs guarding the property now. Every day, somebody takes the opportunity to humble me and let me know that there's a little more to learn from these amazing dogs. And it it's very dynamic and I, I love it. That's excellent. You said something I, that I thought was really cool and kind of expresses how I feel about just in my early few years of experience with livestock guardian dogs is they look like dogs, but they're something different. And that's, <laughs> yes. that is, um, 
very much uh, what my feeling was after being exposed to livestock guardian dogs on a firsthand basis. I'd been to other farms where you have, you know, a little contact with livestock guardian dogs, but until I had my own, I didn't fully get that. And so I wonder if you could just dive into that a little more and explain to our audience what, what you mean by they look like dogs, but they're something else entirely. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, oh, let's see, you'll want to edit this part. So companion dogs are dogs that are bred to look for look for instruction from an owner. They're, look, they're bred to feel that people are the center of their world. Livestock guardian dogs are bred to feel the connection to real estate, not the person. So what is reinforcing to them is their relationship with the community of livestock they live with on the ground that they stand on. So every time they put their foot down, they're saying, I own it, I own it, I own it, I own it, it's mine. They're nocturnal dogs. They're very reinforced by their environment and by being with their animals. If being around people is also reinforcing, then that's okay with them. But if it isn't, they will move away from people and go back to work. They're very capable of this job all on their own. And when I train livestock guardian dogs, um, I often use the environment to set them up for success and they know how to do their job. I just need to set up the environment well so that it's not getting in the way. Um, I teach them how to be safe with me and be on leash and all that stuff, but there's not a human in the world that could teach a livestock guardian dog how to do the intricate job that they know how to do. I've raised puppies and I've seen six week old puppies leave a litter and do a perimeter check. How do they know that? Right. You know, they look like dogs. They look like cute little puppies, right? And then nose goes down, tail goes up, and they go off and do a perimeter check all by themselves. It's just amazing. And, and how are they different just in their engagement with you as their trainer? Um, what, what do you see? Do you see unique things in their personality as compared to um, companion dogs other than just the context, the ground you're standing on? What? What do you see in their eyes, in their behaviors, in their interactions to you that are different? Well, one of the things that you really have to be aware of in training livestock guardian dogs is that they are never not working. The most of their attention mm. that you ever have is 50% of their brain. If they're working with you or doing anything else and there's a stimulus off on a far field, they will leave you in a hot second and go to work. So they've always got one part of their brain doing their job while they're trying to accommodate whatever training request that I am making. The other thing is that they don't stay and repetitively do over and over and over behaviors that a companion dog will do. You can go in a room with a companion dog and ask him to sit 16 times. And as long as you're making it a win for the pup, for the dog, he'll keep taking treats. He'll keep, you know, he'll keep doing it. A Maremma will give you about three behaviors and then he figures you should have figured it out by now. And he will, <laughs> He will go back to work or he will be willing to do something else. But typical training sessions for me with livestock guardian dogs are 20 to 30 seconds. Um, uh. I often don't stop walking. I often don't, often don't stop moving. I reinforce them when we're traveling. Um, almost all the work I do with the livestock dogs is in the fields that they live in with their partner, with the livestock off leash, because the value that I want to create for them needs to happen on they're responsible for. So if I can go to them and I can weave in training when they don't even know that it's happening and I'm I'm shaping, I'm creating 
a successful and versatile dog without them being aware of it, um, that's a really big difference. Now that kind of training, um, LGDs are really up for. That makes sense to them. They're eager to do it. I have found them to be sensitive, quick learners, wonderful, wonderful dogs to work with. But if you go get an LGD and you put a leash on him and you take him out in the yard and you try to teach him to sit, you're going to run into 16 different issues that are not there for a companion dog because of what you just did. The conflict that it puts that dog in, you took him away from his job, you put him on a leash, you, he's now responsible for where he's standing and where he was. There's, there's things like that, that um, are really, if you tease it backwards and you understand it, it makes good sense, but it's not the kind of thing that you, that an owner could possibly know unless they've had experience with LGDs because it's not true of companion dogs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating because if if I have a oh a cocker spaniel puppy or some or just a, a pet or companion breed and I want to teach it to lay down and be calm or I want to teach it to sit or do do whatever walk on lead uh, at heel I'm going to go out and create the most distraction free environment I possibly can in my front yard right. and and ask that dog to focus on me. And correct the dog if it doesn't focus on me, but we have this this extra layer with the guardian dogs of that context that they're always working to protect the place and everything that's around it where the dog is located in that moment. And, and plus, as you point out, they have the memory of that other place that they should be protecting too. Well, they can, they can still smell it. They can still hear it. They still know that it's there. So you've just made their job harder by taking them somewhere else, but they didn't quit working. Right. Okay. You know. So we we dove in there or jumped in with both feet into training and I without addressing I think something that is, you know, kind of a big um a, a big obstacle perhaps to a lot of folks who are interested in livestock guardian dogs and that's simply that you train livestock guardian dogs like we kind of skipped over that part, right? And a lot of folks I think <laughs> You know, they think of a livestock guardian dog as needing more just kind of conditioning or the right environment more than actual training. So tell me what led you to believe that that livestock guardian dogs needed direct hands-on training on a regular basis? And because it saves their lives. Tell me 30%, more. 30% of the LGDs in this country are euthanized. Most of them are euthanized over learned behaviors. Most of it ends up being aggression. Even people that love their dogs, living with a 100-pound dog that's willing to bite a person, bite a child, bite livestock, no matter how much you care about that dog, if that's a point that you've reached, that may be untenable and it may cost the dog his life. Puppies are born perfect. They're not born with these problems. The problems that LGDs get killed over are learned behaviors at the hands of people. People that make mistakes about how to set up an environment, people that make mistakes about how what a realistic expectation of a dog is with mm -hmm. um, response to a cue, for instance, or how to behave around livestock or, you know, there's there's so much of they know how to guard. That's genetic. And if you gave an LGD a big field and a bunch of livestock, he might never make a mistake. But if you take that LGD and you give him a small area where he's bored or give him an area to work by himself without the ability to also be social, know how to be a dog, put him in with livestock that will hurt him when he's young. Those are all ways that dogs learn that their coping mechanisms come to, come into, uh, how do I want to say this? Um, 
Aggression is is cope is coping mechanism. It's it's a way for a dog to deal with frustration. So it's not a go-to for most dogs. It's not the first um, communication tool that they reach. But pushed far enough, it's where they'll end up. And creating a world that has conflict in it for an LGD that doesn't make sense to them, that they don't feel safe in, is how that starts to to happen. And I believe that most of the LGDs in this country that fail, failed in the first six months of their lives. It's very common for dogs to be relinquished to rescues when they're a year old to 18 months old, but that's when those behaviors start to show up. It's not when they started. That mm -hmm. framework started way back when that was a really impressionable dog. LGDs, the first six months is super critical. You don't ever get a do-over. Um, and it's very difficult to retrain these dogs. They don't think that what a person thinks is particularly relevant anyway. So if they've learned something as a young dog and it makes sense to them and it works for them, whether it works for you or not, aggression works for dogs. It pushes people away. It, it stops situations that they can't handle. So from their point of view, that is effective. So if they've learned that that's what they need to do and then they get older and sexual maturity comes into play, they start feeling some autonomy. Um, then they start to evidence some of the, the damaging behaviors that they learned when they were younger. And it's very difficult to retrain LGDs. It's doesn't, it's, it's not so much with companion dogs because you can control their world. You can put, you can control where they live. LGDs work out in a big field. They work at night when you're asleep, you're not watching them. There's just, there's all kinds of second chances for companion dogs that are mishandled by people or end up in rescues or whatever that are not reasonable second chances for LGD. So the stakes are very, very high. Um, people that um, are gonna give it a try themselves. Um, that's a frustrating thing for me. Um, is it an experiment or are you, are, are you saving a life? Mm -hmm. Because if you're practicing to see if you can do this before you reach out for help or become well-educated about an LGD, and you find that this is a different kind of dog and you actually don't have all the skills that you need to be successful with this dog, who pays? Right. <laughs> you know, um, and you can start over with another dog. I've had people tell me they bought a bad Marama. They're going to get rid of it and get a good one. I mean, yeah. on, honestly, um, but, but learning from these dogs is humbling. And it, it is ongoing. I mean, even at my experience, it is. So it's not possible to be a new LGD owner and know everything, and it isn't necessary. But paying attention to the comfort of the dog, paying attention to how often the dog is doing behaviors that you like to see that works in your environment, and how often the dog looks uncomfortable or is doing things you don't want to see more of, and then you step in and you change something in the environment or change something in yourself, then the dog goes back to being comfortable. I mean, I, I figured this out on my own out here. It was almost by Braille, you know, and it was just watching the dog, watching the dog in, in certain circumstances and having the dog behave differently than I had seen in the past with companion dogs. Mm -hmm. So and when I started with LGDs, there was not good and trustworthy resources out there for being well-educated as an LGD owner. That is not true anymore. There is there is trustworthy science-based stuff out there that people can find. There is, but there's a, a lot of 
um, how would I put this? <laughs> There's a lot of <laughs> not science-based stuff that is presented as either old, old long-held wisdom or as a pseudoscience. So how, how does a livestock guardian dog owner work through, you know, what is legitimate advice and what is not? What is just the same old yarn being repeated a hundred times online um, that doesn't actually work? And we need to get rid of that advice and, and look at it in a fresh way. How do you sort through all that? Well, most of the time, you really ought to stay off of social media. Social media <laughs> is dangerous to dogs. There are people that have websites out there that have great big egos and they spout their truth and if you don't know a whole lot about dogs it's very difficult to to find what are pearls of wisdom and what things are dangerous and i find that most most of it is dangerous science-based training is consistent across any animal any species so if you're looking at training advice and it's not based in science move on you can find, um, oh, let's see, how do I want to say this? You're going to have to, you're going to want to edit this thing too. I'll start over. Um, dogs do things for two reasons. Behavior is purposeful. Behavior serves a need for the dog. Dogs do things to gain something or avoid escape something. If the situation if you can create a situation that's reinforcing to the dog, he will do behaviors for you to gain that reinforcement. Um, he will not do things to you, for you to make you happy. He's not on the planet to make you happy. He's not, he should know better. He should know better than to chase the chicken. Um, this is how you make the dog do things. You put a put a shock collar on, put a leash on, um, go out and tell the dog no when he's doing things that you don't want him to do. None of that makes any sense to dogs and it isn't based in science. So if you come across advice like that on a Facebook page or anywhere else, say thank you very much and move on and go find something that is consistently based in science. What I have found is that I have had to take what science tells me about how dogs learn and figure out how to teach my maremmas things that are valuable for them and me as guardian dogs. I don't need an obedient sit. I don't need a loose leash walk. What I need is a dog that will respond to a hand signal, you know, put his nose in my hand and let me move him through a flock of sheep. Um, I can put my hand out to the side and it's recall. A dog of mine will come flying for 50 feet and shove his nose in my hand. People talk about LGDs that don't come when called. I couldn't go out there and say, Jesse, come and have any of them do anything but hysterical giggles. But I can show up out there and be a party and put my hand out to the side and they've learned that that's hand targeting and that they'll get a cuddle if they do it and they will come flying. So that kind of skills, those kinds of skills are valuable to LGDs. Sit, stay, come, how to be in a crate, um, much less so, uh, especially stay. Um, so, but people that feel like they need to control dogs, people that feel like dogs owe them something, train from that kind of point of view. And that's an immediate disconnect for an LGD. Companion dogs, a lot of them succeed in spite of their owners, not because of them. And there's a little more leeway for making mistakes. But with an LGD, if you manage him that way, he will become the hard of hearing, independent, difficult to train dog that all the social media places talk about. 
And that has to do with the training language, not the dog. Remember that puppy was born perfect. So advice that empowers a dog, advice that respects a dog as sovereign um, will work with LGDs. And if you don't see dogs that way, you're going to run into problems with them because that's how they see their world. So it would be nice maybe if it was different, but it's not different. That's just a fact. So we're coming alongside a dog and working with them rather than by God be right works for LGDs. But you won't see that on Facebook pages. You'll see it on mine, but you won't see it other places. Right. You so you kind of made us a little list there, and that was a, a question I was gonna ask anyway. So I'm I'm just gonna ask you to expand on this. I mean in training a livestock guardian dog, what do you think needs to be trained? What behaviors are beyond just conditioning the dog to bond with livestock and, and stay with its stock and that sort of thing? What, what behaviors do you think are necessary for a, a good high-performing livestock guardian dog to have that you need to actively train? Well, first of all, I have to back up and say that two of the things you said there, I don't believe in. I don't think that you condition an LGD to stay with livestock or teach him any of that. I think that you set up an environment so that he can and he will. So it's your job to create the framework, training with guardrails. And for guardian dogs, 90% of what they need to learn comes from the environment, comes from manipulating how, how, how big the field is, how, how many animals are out there, what kind of animals, do they feel safe? For a young dog to be around when a young dog starts to get bored you up the ante give him a little more animals give him a little more responsibility a little bigger areas those are ways to to create a livestock guardian dog that thinks he can do anything mm -hmm. um, it is always a goal of mine to raise dogs in a way that they do not know that they can make a mistake when you correct a dog and you tell a dog he's wrong first of all he was doing something that met a need for him so if you don't want him to do that, your job is to offer him a different way to meet that need that also meets yours. So I often interrupt and redirect a dog. I'll take him, I'll stop whatever he's doing and move him to something else and tell him he's marvelous. So in truth, I guess, maybe he made a mistake and I needed to do something, but from his perspective, all we did was kind of shift gears mm -hmm. and move around. And that kind of training, LGDs are eager to do. They're, they're happy to do it. The first thing that I teach any of my dogs is a heavy reinforcement history for eye contact. I like to have them look at me. If I have a dog's eyes, I have his brain. If I have a dog on a leash, I have his body. If I have his eyes, I have his brain. Mm. So dogs that are well-trained by me can be 50 feet away in a field. And if I can get their eyes, I can ask for a behavior or reinforce something that they're doing on their own and train that dog without ever breaking stride or even being in the field. That kind of training is really valuable to dogs. Second, I teach dogs that my hands mean something, that my body position means something, but certainly my hands. My hands can replace my need for a leash and a collar. I don't have to be prepared to move a dog. If I've taught a dog that if he puts his nose in my palm, he comes to me, or if he keeps his nose there, he follows me. I can go out and dangle my fingers in front of a dog and move them through a flock of sheep. And they will do loosely walking next to me, you know, bouncy wagging their tails, thinking that this is a really fun thing. And I'm cuddling their little noses with my fingers. But actually, I just put a leash on and move them through a field of animals without having to be prepared or, or, be in charge, that kind of 
partnership with LGDs is, is seamless and beautiful. And when you watch a lot of the training videos that I've done that are ones I'm really proud of, it looks like nothing's happening. And it's because it's just all kind of floating together and it looks like a happy accident, but it's not. And I always have my hands and my voice and my training relationship and my touch. So I'm always prepared to be a trainer in any circumstance. And if my hand will bring a dog to me, and if my hand can move a dog, that's really, really valuable to an LGD. It's more valuable than learning sit, stay. And it's easy, easy, easy to teach puppies. They love it. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I should have been a little more precise in my language. Um, it seems like with livestock guardian dogs that they're, well, with any dog, really, that there's kind of like... Um, passive training that involves mostly setting the scenario in the correct way and then a more active training that requires um a well i suppose some sort of command whether it be a uh, uh, just a body language thing or an actual voice command to get a prescribed action so other than the things you've already mentioned of being able to lead a dog through a herd just by the positioning of your hands and your treatment for them, are there other things that you would expect a dog, a livestock guardian dog to do actively, perhaps on command or on cue? Well, why don't you give me an example of something that you wish one of your dogs would do just because you said so. These are minimally biddable dogs. Biddability is do it because I said so. So a command is, is an order, do it, and it has a consequence. A cue is an opportunity to be re reinforced if they respond to the request that you gave them. So I use cues, not commands. What can you think of from an LGD that you would need that you would ask for and get? Uh, jump in the back of my truck because we have to okay. go to a new pasture or we have to go see a vet or something like that. If it was one of my dogs and I pointed at the truck, they'd get in. If I put my hand towards the truck, I moved it away from their nose so they're following a target and that hand goes up into the back of the pickup, they're going to get in. So it's the same um, behavior that you ask for when you're walking through the pasture. Um, you, you, it's just directed at an object, <laughs> directed in a different direction. It's it's targeting is what it okay. is. And um, zoos use this all the time to move animals from one enclosure to another. Um, it has br much broader implications than anybody realizes. I can add a, a verbal cue to that. I can point at the truck and say, go get in the truck. The dog will certainly associate those two. And I could, I could verbally ask for that later. But the way that I would teach it would be to take something that is already a basic skill and make it more specialized or complex in a different kind of a setting. So He'll put his his nose in my palm standing next to me. Great. If I move it three feet away, will he move three feet and do it? If I move it through a gate, will he go through a gate and do it? Then if I put it in the back of the pickup, will he go to there? Really easy to build incrementally strength in that behavior. And you can use it in a million ways. One of the things that I teach my dogs is that I, I put a flat hand on their back. So they're targeting their back to my hand now. That means stand still. So if I'm out working with a with a buzzy adolescent dog and he's getting all wound up and we just need to just take a time out, right? I can bring him to me with my hand. I can put my hand on his back. He'll take a breath. It's like 30 seconds. And then we start again. So it's an emotional reset. 
he's standing there and he's he's happy and looking in my eyes while he's doing it. We're getting a little cuddle fast. He has no idea that he just about screwed up and ate a sheep. And I didn't have to tell him that he did. I just brought him back to me and we start over. Those are actual, I mean, you're, you're talking about active training, purposeful on cue behaviors. I see those as purposeful on cue behaviors and extremely valuable to an LGD and something I always have because mm -hmm. I always have my voice. I always have my hand, I always have my body and body language, body cues make a lot of sense to dogs. Mm -hmm. Yep. Verbal cues, less so. And if you add a verbal cue to something that also has a physical aspect to it, it's easier for them to get, like like adding a cue to get in the truck with my hand pointing at the truck. Um, that kind of training, you do not have to be a training whiz to accomplish at all. You can be a total beginner. It's easy. You can learn it in companion dog books. It's not an LGD-specific um, behavior, but it's it's extremely valuable in the life of an LGD because as a farmer, I'm out there, I'm on the run, I'm busy, I've got animals all around me, I've got a task list that I'll never get to the end of. I do not want to have to go around, go back to the barn and get a leash to go get the dog who's buzzing around with a sheep and then plan and do something different. I can on real time standing out there, bring the dog back to me from 50 feet away because he's happy to do it and do something else with him for a few minutes and then he'll go off to the left instead of the right and and disaster averted mm -hmm. you know tra training mistake averted and the dog never has any perception of ever having been on the edge of something that i don't want him to do so to me that's efficient valuable lgd training and it, it's again you're not going to hear that in a facebook page you're going to hear by golly, make him do whatever. That doesn't work in my life. And I have never raised a Maremma that wasn't a successful guardian. Mm -hmm. So I walk the walk. I have done a lot with my education. None of it's been about livestock guardian dogs. I come home and I try it on the dog. I walk out there and say, so they said this, what do you think? Does this do anything for us? Does this make anything better? Um, and in that way, I have focused on things that are valuable to me and things that I could teach the dogs that are not all that valuable to me for an LGD. You you have a knack for getting right ahead of me on these questions because I was just about to ask. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, this is perfect. They're good segues. I was just about to ask, are there, and you know, I, uh, I don't want to parse the language too much. So I apologize if I use the term command instead of cue. I know you kind of emphatically made a, drew a distinction there, but uh, so I apologize if I switch them up, but are there okay. cue? Can I, can I interrupt yeah. you for just a second? Sure. So this is a podcast meant to educate and meant to reach out to people that care about these dogs. So you using command and me being able to talk about it with you is very valuable because most of the people out there are going to say command and Q is newer or different or whatever. And, and taking a minute to identify that is valuable. So you didn't make a mistake. You gave me an opportunity to talk about something that I think is pivotal and matters. So thank you. Good. You're welcome. Um, so are, are there behaviors that you can teach a Q for um, in a companion dog or even a herding dog or some other farm dog that you find rather pointless or per, or at worst case um, regressive to teach to a livestock guardian dog to even bother with? Is, is there anything that you would advise folks to just 
get that out of your brain. We're not going to even mess with that. Sit, stay down. Down meaning power, lie down? Away, they take power away from the dog. They, you're asking the dog to submit, I guess, is a... An LGD is a powerful animal. They're a working animal. If you tell them to sit or lie down or stay in one spot, you've made it harder for them to respond to a mountain lion, for instance. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense to them why you would ask that. And you can teach these dogs anything. You can teach them. I, I consider those parlor tricks. It's like, I can teach it. I know how to teach it. But it's a bigger ask for a guardian dog than it is for a companion dog because they have to almost make concessions to you to give you something that doesn't make a lot of sense to them, that doesn't have a lot of usefulness in their lives. People think that um, when you get a new puppy, those are those are all basics that you teach a puppy if you're a responsible owner. And for a companion dog who's going to be in a house with you that needs to go lie on a mat in a corner or whatever, down and stay makes really good sense. Um, people use sit a lot as a way to immobilize a dog, mm -hmm. and if a dog is fuzzy and fast and he's annoying the heck out of you and you want him to just stop and you tell him sit, well, if he's fuzzy, first of all, his brain's not very engaged and sit is difficult in a, on a good day for a guardian dog. And then you're asking a, a busy dog to be really still and put his butt on the ground and just stay there. That isn't very realistic. It's a really hard thing for a guardian dog to do. And if you ask that kind of thing, the dog will learn to the dog will learn that you don't make a lot of sense and they'll go do something else. So you're going to have a busy dog who's now ignoring you. Mm -hmm. So again, back to targeting in my hand stuff. If I have a busy dog and I put my hand out and he comes near me and I put my hands on him, he is near me and still, and that makes sense to him. And he's standing on four feet so he can run off and guard if he wants to. So I haven't asked him to compromise his ability to work, but I have created a situation where I can make him hold still I can bring him to me. I can make him stay quiet. That That is valuable. Asking for those companion dog things of a guardian dog stresses the owner's relationship with a dog. And it starts to create a dog that doesn't look forward to training opportunities, doesn't look forward to meeting the expectations of a person because it's confusing and it's difficult. It doesn't always work. And his life makes perfect sense to him if he stays away. Mm -hmm. And guardian yeah. dogs are notorious for that and from their point of view it makes complete sense to me sure yeah that's really helpful now you mentioned crate training um briefly and so i just want to come back to that a little bit in terms of crate training what are your what are your expectations for a livestock guardian dog um how much time do you expect them to tolerate in a crate what is the goal of of crate training them because it's not like housebreaking is part of the deal when you're dealing with a companion animal that's part of the crate training thing so what are the objectives you're trying to achieve with crate training for a livestock guardian dog so the most reinforcing thing for a livestock guardian dog is ownership of ground and a community when you take that away from him it is an aversive it's punishing it's mm -hmm. it is experienced as punitive by the dog. So if I take an LGD out of a field and I stick him in a crate and I close the door, think about what his brain just did. Now, there are times that like if a dog is injured, he has to be able to tolerate confinement. He has to be able to, to tolerate some of those things that, that companion dogs will, will do easily. 
most of the time um, I will find some other way because create, creating an LGD who's a working dog will often create training problems for me as a result of me taking his job away from him and sticking him in a box. So I would have to have a really good reason to want to do that. All of my puppies are taught that they can be in crates and the doors closed and it is a den kind of a place and it's a welcoming, happy place. But I wouldn't use it as a way to combine an adult LGD almost ever unless I really had to. Um, if I have to confine an LGD, like if he's, if he's injured, if he's had surgery or whatever, um, I will often use um, trazodone, use use psychiatric meds so that mm. the dog's brain is quiet and he's comfortable with being in a small area away from his animals so that he's not in there being stressed. He's not in there experiencing what I'm doing to him as punitive so that when I put him back out to work, he's not come up with all kinds of screwy behaviors as response to me handling him for days in a way that didn't make any sense. Um, vets tell people when dogs are spayed to confine them for two weeks. If you do that to a working LGD, you have created now a mess after the sutures are healed and vets are not aware of that. It's not the same with companion dogs. Um, so there's often a balance that has to be sought um, between how you would deal with a companion dog, what you could get away with um, and what is is really ultimately a bigger ask for an LGD than you might think. And if you ask more than you should, what you're gonna get is a dog that's trying to cope with something that he doesn't understand. So you're gonna get frustration and you're gonna get tipping towards aggression. That's how that stuff starts to happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so uh, just a, a couple more training questions. Um, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned on your website um, by the way, fantastic website, uh, bensonmaremas.com. Lots of great advice in your blogs. You've got a thousand resources that we'll talk about a little bit more here. Uh, but in one of your blog posts, I was just reading, you were, you were commenting about how much you enjoy, um, well, you might have already said it actually right here in our conversation, how much you enjoy working with adolescent uh, LGD dogs that your customers, that your clients bring to you. Uh, but at the same time, earlier on, you said that usually problems are formed early on as a puppy um, and they start to express themselves in that adolescent stage. So what do you do with your clients to make sure in that time between when they get a puppy from you and when it might come back or maybe you didn't even sell them the puppy? I mean, how do you how do you know you're not just getting a bunch of problems that were already are just starting to express themselves. And what do you enjoy about that adolescent stage so much? It's an opportunity to save the dog's life. It's still a window of time where if I'm an effective trainer, I still have the potential of influencing him, his behavior and tipping him towards safety. If I'm working with a dog that's a year old or, or older, it's behavior modification and that takes a lot longer. And with an LGD, you can't unring a bell. They're gonna hold on to those memories and so it's so it's harder but with an with a with an adolescent dog he's had less time to screw up so i have a greater opportunity to to create positive oh i'm not saying this well um i enjoy dogs in adolescence because it's a dynamic time Things are happening fast. The dogs feel a lot of confidence in themselves. They're they're big enough that they can go out in a big field and go to work. So it's not 
um, getting ready to be working dogs. By the time um, an LGD is five or six months old, he should be out working in a field. So I can go, I can, the sky's the limit. I can do anything and ask anything of an adolescent dog. Mm. And, and, and that's, that's what you would, the parameters you'd put on a adolescent dog is five, six, seven months old. That's about what you call adolescence. I think adolescence would be for my terms, probably four months to six months, four months to under a year, I guess. Okay. But after six months, there's windows of opportunity to train puppies where you can do very little and they learn a whole lot. As those windows start to change, you have to work harder. You have to do more things more often to influence behavior. So before six months, there's it's you can do very little training and have a very big result. After six months, you have to work harder at it. These dogs are not considered adults until they're two or sometimes older. So from six months to two years old, certainly is adolescence. Um, I think four months is about where it starts, but that six month window is a real sweet spot. Um, and when you get past that, if you've, if they've learned behaviors that they shouldn't, or they haven't had the opportunity to learn behaviors they're going to need as a guardian dog, for instance, if people keep them as a pet and then put them out in a pasture and tell them to go to work, that happens all the time. The, the framework for being a guardian dog is no longer there at six months if they haven't had the opportunity to do it before. Um, the genetic conversation is, but the dog doesn't know what to do with that information. And then they end up doing all kinds of screwy, unpredictable behavior, like guarding certain people, guarding certain areas, you know, stuff like that. Um, I didn't answer your question very well. You just <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. No, that is all very helpful. So uh, one of the things I noted uh, from your website too, is that most of the dogs that you've bred and sold from your farm, you have sold as adolescents. And is that your approach primarily? Is that a financial consideration? Or is that a success rate consideration? Um, that's, that's a success consideration. I know that the first six months are the most critical. I have the good fortune of living on a property that has 15 different fields that I can start dogs in of all variety of sizes, a variety of livestock, the experience of having raised many, many litters, and you get better at it every time, you know, every litter raises the bar and does a better job for the next one. So most people, I used to preferentially sell to people that had never had livestock guardian dogs before, because I would like to work with someone who's hungry to learn. I'm not interested in trying to change somebody's mind about something, you know? So if you're, if you, if you know, you don't know anything, you're really interested in learning it. So right. that's a pretty cool thing. Um, so, and I, and I believe in hip testing. I hip tested all the dogs um, and I use pen hip testing and that can be done at four months. Um, I often spayed or neutered. I like to place male, female pairs. I would often spay or neuter one or both dogs before they left me. Um, like somewhere between six months to a year because accidental pregnancies are devastating, particularly, you know, sibling pregnancies and, and it happens. So I just tried to make it as bulletproof as possible. I see. And work with the owners before the, you know, the owners, people that bought dogs from me were welcome to come here and train a lot. Um, and so if they've been involved in what I've been teaching the dog and they've been learning alongside and then they come here and they work alongside when those dogs go to a new home, they're just moving on to a new field, you know, and if the language is the same, it's the same. And they just seamlessly 
go off and go to work and the owner's like, wow, this is easier than I thought. Well, it's because of all the, all the front end stuff. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. It's also what I like to do best. All these litters of puppies are my science projects. You know, I'm not right. in a hurry to let them go. <laughs> yeah. Do you have an opinion about raising? Um, I mean, if anybody has the experience with this, it would be you. Do you have an opinion about the benefits or drawbacks of raising puppies together as opposed to dividing them in, and putting them with their own little group of animals? Um, are there bad things that a pair of puppies, for example, this is this is uh, specific to my situation at the moment because I have a pair of puppies on the ground. Are there potential problems um, perhaps the pair of puppies ganging up on stock that they wouldn't have had the boldness to do on their own otherwise. Um, what are your, okay, what are your thoughts stop. about that? I'm old and you're adding too many things and I'll lose, I'll lose, <laughs> I'll lose track of what I, I tend, say. I tend to do that. Sorry. That, no, that's okay. And, and you've got edit at your service, so this will be fine. So a guardian dog to be successful has to know two things. He has to know his relationship to the earth real estate and to the community of animals that he with, is with but he also needs to know how to be a dog and dogs learn how to be dogs from each other a person cannot teach that livestock cannot teach it nobody else can teach it so if a puppy is taken away from other dogs and with a livestock dog it needs to be a livestock dog who cares about real estate who works nocturnally you know all that they don't grow up with good social skills and they don't read body language well and back off when asked. Um, they're don't, they don't um, accept a new guardian dog later as well. They're not as trustworthy around the ranch dogs and companion dogs that all of us have around the edges of the dogs that are working in the fields. So, and it's stressful. I mean, if you were kept on an island and nobody was around, but you were doing a job that you like, but nobody was around, there's a big piece of your social need that's not being met and it's going to create problems other places. So I prefer to place dogs that are the same age, at least two dogs together. That does not mean that there aren't going to be challenges. There may be times where I separate those two dogs and they're working in a field next to each other. They learn at different rates. There might be a pup that is nurturing and slow and a pup that wants to be a rocket for a while, two weeks of crazy well, that's the dog that I'm going to put in the field next door with animals that aren't going to run until he settles down a little bit and his brain chemistry shifts a little bit. Then I'm going to give him his partner back. So having having a pair of dogs raised as partners does not mean that they're never away from each other or that you as an owner don't still have management things, decisions to make. But what you're doing also, though, is meeting the social needs of the dogs and creating a well-balanced well, well-rounded individual and every job that that dog does for the rest of his life is going to benefit from that solid, well-rounded individual mentality and sense of safety and sense of the world makes sense that they learn when they're puppies. Okay. So thank you. You answered that question perfectly, despite me overwhelming you with information and over <laughs> front loading that question so heavily. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, Let's let's move on to Maremmas a little bit because I have um with you here I'm fortunate enough to have access to a Maremma expert and I happen to have a Maremma here on my farm that I think is great. Just talk to us a bit about the breed a little bit, how you arrived at Maremmas as opposed to other breeds and I know you've trained and worked with other breeds and you probably have some on your farm right now. What do you like about Maremmas 
I mean, my goodness, it's in the name of your business and your website, Benson Maremmas, right? So there must be some reason why. Would you tell us about that? Okay, so I'm back up a little bit. Livestock guardian dogs are nocturnal and they're bred with minimal prey drive. That's the point. In the different areas of the world where they were bred, they were bred to do specialized jobs. So a Great Pyrenees in a guarding posture has his nose way up in the air, getting an olfactory hit. He's gazing off across six fields and he thinks that he owns my house, the neighbors, the neighbors, the neighbors, and the neighbors. He doesn't think he needs to stay inside of the livestock. He's bred to do a bigger job. Some of these other livestock guardian dogs are very sensitive to change. They don't welcome strangers. It makes them feel uneasy. They need a life that's very consistent for them to feel safe. So in looking for a guardian dog for me, what I needed to do was figure out what kind of a breed was bred for the intimacy of my circumstance. I have lots of strangers coming. I have lots of little children come. I have a very low threshold for dog aggression towards people or dog aggression in general. So I know these things about myself and about how the property is going to function. So I looked at the two, the two breeds that have the greatest affinity for people and the highest tolerance of change, as I understand it. And that's the Great Pyrenees and the Maremma. But Great Pyrenees are notorious for going over fences, under fences, and going all over a neighborhood because they believe they're responsible for things that they can't see. Mm. A Maremma believes that he owns what's within a perimeter. So if you put a fence around him, it defines for him his responsibility. He wants to be inside of his livestock most of the time. There's a graphic that's pretty funny. That's a picture of Marama guarding sheep, and it's a Marama guarding sheep. And then below it, it's a Great Pyrenees guarding sheep, and it's just the sheep. <laughs> They're willing to go over field and field and field and then come home again. They come around. But a Marama wants to be very aware of where his animals are, no matter where he is. So I like living with a dog that wants to stay home. Mm -hmm. I like a dog that looks forward to visitors. I can create a dog that feels like all the different changes in this ranch are things that he can handle and he doesn't need to worry about and he's not stressed by. Because um, I want a dog to be able to live with me in a way that meets his needs and mine. And my lifestyle, a Marema works real well. Now, if I, if I lived where someone could drive by and steal my dog, one of my dogs is probably not what you want because they trust people and they're going to come up. So one of those other breeds is not going to be easy for anybody to mess with. They're going to stay away. They're going to bark. They're going to be very threatening. So those other breeds are specialized to do different jobs that are very valuable in those circumstances. That isn't how I live. So that's what I was looking for. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, big picture question here. And I'm going to kind of ask you to represent the whole breed, <laughs> which I know is unfair. But what what do you think is the state of the Maremma breed in the U.S. right now? Are there enough good Maremmas being bred for work or have they kind of met the same problems that many other breeds have that they just become show dogs, companion dogs, farmstead mascots, that sort of thing? Any, any any LGD breed that's recognized by the AKC is a potential train wreck because you have a dog that looks like that breed but isn't wired the way that you need him to to be. So Maremmas are still not recognized by AKC. Thank you very much. Please never do that. Um, in Italy or Europe, I guess I know more about Italy, they're bred as show dogs and you can easily import 
a Maremma from Italy that comes from a show kennel. You had not easily import a Maremma from a sheep herder because he's busy. He doesn't register his dogs. He's not in town. He doesn't have a website and he doesn't care. He's using his dogs. So a lot of the imported dogs bring problems into this country. Um, I have never been around a Maremma that didn't know how to work. And I've been around Great Pyrenees that from the beginning and never didn't know how to work. And it's because of the mix of genetics about show dogs and pets and whatnot. So I think that Maremmas are still in pretty good shape that way. Um, I think that there are not very many good breeders out there anymore. I am, I've got one person that I'll refer people to, and it's a different person than I would refer people to two weeks ago. I don't think there's enough hip testing out there. Um, I think that Maremmas as a breed are probably in pretty good shape, um, but hips is that's devastating and breeding dogs that you don't know what their hips are and you don't know what you've produced in your puppies. If you have a dog that has hips that won't allow him to guard a hundred hilly acres and have a sound life until he's eight, if you know that that dog doesn't have hips like that, but you put him on one acre with three sheep, he may live to be 10 years old and have a life. So knowing how to advocate for a dog, what kind of a job to give a dog, um, I think matters and it's, it's uncommon. I mean, I've hip tested more Maramas than anybody anywhere, like, like something like a hundred. Um, and it needs to happen more often. And it's really common for people to have breeding programs year after year after year and have one or two of a litter of puppies be tested. So you don't really know what's out there. And guardian dogs are very stoic and they work at night and they sleep all day. So they will work when they're in pain and they sleep in a heap in the daytime and you don't know that they're that they're suffering. You think they're sleeping because they're tired because they worked all night. So it's harder to know about how healthy a dog is, an LGD is than it is a companion dog because of that. Mm -hmm. um, so that matters. Great um, point. Didn't ask, didn't answer what you wanted me to though, did I? <laughs> no, you did just great. Are there any uh, unique characteristics about the Maremma breed that our listeners need to know about if they're considering getting one? Give me an example. Um, you know, you already hit on some things, but mostly positive. Is there anything that, uh, depending on a, a farm or rancher situation, that they might not find the Maremma to be the ideal breed? What are its drawbacks? I don't know if a Maremma is as aggressive a breed as some for like wolves, grizzly bears, you know, really, really high pressure. Um, Maremmas are intimate garters. I don't know if they would welcome being on 300 acres and never seeing a person and encountering those kinds of predators without, without, I think they're better suited to, I suspect, but I, that's not how I've used my dog. So I haven't tested this, but um I think if you if you don't want anybody to steal your dogs and you don't ever want to see them and you don't ever want to interact with them, you want to go out, you want them to leave, go to work, never be seen again. A Maremma is a pretty social dog and he might do that, but it's not what he's bred to do. He's bred to have a shepherd. He's bred to um, be intimate, have a community and have so you might think about that. Like I, I would not have been willing to sell dogs to someone who had a wolf problem. I don't right. know if my dogs could deal with it or not. And I don't want to experiment. Um, and some of the Asian um, breeds might be, some of them have been bred purposefully 
you know, to take on right. wolves. So that might be something to consider. It has been said on this podcast, and it's actually my agrees with my personal experience with my Maremma, is that the 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 breed seems to be a little bit barky. Um, they alert really easily and they kind of continue to bark and they don't kind of just calm down again after the threat subsides. Is there any that's, truth to that's, that? That's training. Mm. Um, a young dog that is given too much responsibility too soon or is afraid at all, like a single dog, offense offense first um barking is their front line of defense of any guardian dog breed to bark don't come don't come any closer i'm here stay away so if you've got a young dog who's worried about something or he's a single dog or he's in too big a field and it's too scary he will bark because that makes sense to him and then that is a self-reinforcing behavior that becomes a way for the dog to comfort himself and so as a young dog if that's how he learns to guard then that is the stamp. And he's going to do that all of his life as an adult dog. So there are people that live with guardian dogs that think they're noisy. I have had, at the beginning of this year, there were 28 here. I sleep just fine. My dogs are discerning. My dogs look at something, think about whether they need to care about it, sound off, go look at it, dial it in, and go away. That has to do with building a puppy that thinks he can't do anything, that does never, never come to understand his mortality. He's never been given a job too big, than, bigger than he can handle. He's never been asked to be a single dog. So without backup, without somebody at his shoulder that's, that's facing that threat together. So I don't raise dogs that bark. And I think any breed can be a dog that barks first and thinks later, depending on how they're, they're started. So that's not a breed trait. I think I've heard that Great Pyrenees bark a lot as a as a primary way to guard. I haven't experienced that, so I don't know. But I can tell you that my my maremmas are quiet. That is a fascinating point. A very good thought provoking uh, place for us to start wrapping up. That is something I never would have considered. So thank you for bringing that to our audience's attention. Uh, Cindy, I think you need to be commended for the many ways you make yourself available to people to help with livestock guardian dog training. Um, you've got Zoom lessons, you've got month, regular monthly lessons. Um, it looks like they can drop their dog off to be boarded with you while you do the training directly. Um, you've got your blog and you are writing a book. Is there anything I've left out? And would you like to tell us a little bit about your book? I'm writing three books, <laughs> actually. Um, I hope I hope one will be published later this year. I'm writing about um, how to use least intrusive training methods with guardian dogs. And if you think about um, zoo training, where an animal has a right to leave, um, that comes, that, that, that's what that book is about, is how to, how to, how to do humane training with an animal that is indeed independent, that you indeed need to get a job from, how to do it with a guardian dog, because it's not written out there anywhere how to use that with this specialized animal. Um, one of the books is about clicker training specific to LGDs and realistic expectations. The oh, other cool. one is how to raise an LGD puppy from start to finish and support him in the livestock portions of that. Excellent. When can we expect those so, to be available? Well, every, whenever I bring a dog here for training, that slows way down because I video <laughs> all the training and then I write blog posts about it and, and all that. So 
Um, but they will happen. Um, having There's a training manual now that I wrote that's on Amazon um, that is a partner to um, a companion dog training course that is designed for a companion dog owner. The training manual that I wrote lesson by lesson says, this works for an LGD, this doesn't, we don't care about this, go do this with this, this is how it's valuable, this is how to take this science-based education and plug it in with an LGD and go out and be safe and successful. That is a tremendous key to success and it's it's online and it's available to anybody. The blog posts are ever increasing and there's lots of videos on them, so it's not words and theory, it's me out there in real time training dogs that don't always know what I meant to video or write about, you know, like we're going to do this today. Nope, dog does this. And that's what real life is. You go out and you have a plan, but actually the dog has a different plan. And so being able to see it in real time is helpful to people. Um, there's 170 blog posts on there right now, and it's no sign of slowing down. I'm verbose on a good day, right? So, um, <laughs> but th those those things are, are there for free 24-7, and it's trustworthy advice it's not facebook stuff it's not ego stuff i'm never going to be accused of ego i am a humble human being forever being taught by these dogs and i'm happy to just share my stories and what dogs have taught me so that website is a tremendous resource that course and the training manual together is a huge key to success all right um, well that's excellent um Folks, you should really go check out BensonMaremmas.com. That's where all of those resources are and links to the books. And um, I assume you'll make announcements there when the new books are published and um, so our, our listeners can find them. Cindy, you thank can, you. I will. You can, actually, you can also go on Amazon and sign up to follow me as an author and they will send notices when books are published. Yes. Great point. Great point. So definitely get out there and follow Cindy on her website and on Amazon. Cindy, thank you so much for your time. I know that you're super busy and I really appreciate it. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks again. Take care. Thanks for listening to Farm Dog. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please subscribe, leave us a positive review, and tell someone about it. Thanks.